Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Agency, or JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, a Vice President of Horton Works U.S. Public Sector. Sean, Leo, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks. No problem. Thank you. All right, so this isn't another case where I'm getting the government and the vendor on together to talk about a very, very interesting project that you guys have been working on together. So let, let me start at the beginning with, with Leo. Open source, we hear a lot about it. We hear how, how everyone should use it, and it's such a the, the future. And then we all go back to the proprietary software. So talk maybe a little bit about how this approach that you guys have been doing at, at, at Jido has really, you know, around open source software system development really has helped improve what you guys have been doing and trying to, as you guys meet your mission. The challenge always has been, right, is how do you keep uh, out in front uh, as much as you can with the emerging tech. Now, what we've seen over the last couple of years is the open source community really push out in front of uh, a lot of where the commercial space is, right, with commercial entities using these open source capabilities. We kind of jumped on early, so if I take you back a little bit to 2013-2014 timeframe, and let's say we'll talk about big data. You know, the landscape at the time was very open source rich, and very much it was it was small groups of folks developing software uh, in a community to get the capabilities out. The commercial space was still in a little bit more of a traditional model, slowly kind of bleeding some of those capabilities in. But it was a very unsaturated space. If you look at that same space today, uh, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Uh, you have a lot of big box and uh, commercial folks who've come on board. They've, they've brought the technologies in. They've made them available to the consumer, and industry has really pushed it out. So so I think it, it depends where you are on, on your timeline of deploying capability. Right? So we've been very fortunate that because we've had to combat an emerging threat and move as fast as the enemy, we've made a conscious decision to go out there and really embrace the open source community and, and operate a little bit differently. Part of the challenge there has been operating more within the community as opposed to the more traditional model between the government and a vendor where we're just putting in RFIs and, and getting capability out and using what's coming you know, out of the box and maybe doing some additional bills on top of that. What we've seen is that flexibility from, from the open source community where we're not just engaged in the community and understanding what's going on, but we're able to really take these core packages that are out there of capabilities and expand them and, and, and put them together in a way that meets our mission and really pushes that cost down. Let me dig a little deeper. So one thing that you guys have been doing is really applying this open source approach to the way you develop systems and applications. That That's the difference here, not just, hey, we can open up a box and plug it in and it's good to go, but it's a different approach to, to way the, the, the way Jido is bringing in technology. Sure, most definitely, right? So those tactics, techniques, and procedures that the open source community is using, right, uh, definitely we, we've adopted up front. And I think that's one of the critical things, right? So kind of take that waterfall standard, you know, 800-page requirements document approach to building capability and very much focusing on, on secure agile, on maximizing automation, and taking those, those very specific practices that are happening within the open source community and bringing them in, right? And, and opening up the aperture a little bit to whom and how we share information with with our partners, right? Whether it be developers, right? So sometimes it's a, you get your best answers from a meetup versus a a very corporate type meeting. But I think the big thing around that is is taking those very specific 
commercial and open source approaches to developing software and bringing them into the government and operationalizing them in a smart way. And the other piece of this that you mentioned was the the old approach, not just waterfall, but this idea that you would take these RFIs, create these 800-page documents, and, and hope that you get back what you want. Now you guys are seeing in this agile, as you mentioned, DevOps, iterative development. So now what does your process look like today? Completely different. So a lot more uh, customer-focused. So very much embedded uh, as much as possible tactically at the at the edge with the customer. So when we talk about this iterative process, sure, we can take the fundamental, like here's how you build software, uh, here's how you bring a requirement in. But I think the piece that really makes a difference is having folks sitting out left seat, right seat with the customer. So as you're doing these iterative builds, you're getting that instantaneous feedback. So what it's really changed is that whole front-end requirements piece. Um, that piece has become very much streamlined and point-to-point -point with the customer as opposed to kind of the more traditional model where we write a, a huge architecture plan with a very large, you know, 800-page requirements document, which may or may not get read. This is really more about engaging VFR Direct with the customer and being able to have that back and forth conversation as you build. So you can push out that 40% solution, which just meets the bare basic requirements and have them kind of uh, move you in the right direction to get that development cycle knocked down and get it a lot tighter. It's the old uh, don't let the uh, perfect be the enemy of good section okay. where if you, can get, if you can get some capabilities out there and then improve upon them versus trying to get all the capabilities out there. That's correct. Some capability is better than no capability. <laughs> exactly. Let me, let me bring Sean in from Hortonworks. Sean, talk a little bit about your work with Leo and, and Jido a little bit. How, how have you guys helped them kind of move in this direction? Jido, uh, I think it's evident that they're pioneers in the space, and Leo's been been using open source for, for quite a while, as he discussed. One of the things Hortonworks is able to do is we're able to provide an enterprise platform that enables his team to really focus on the mission and, and the higher level capabilities and applications that uh, that they need to be successful. Prior to our partnership, his team with his smart guys that they were effectively building and maintaining and sustaining these projects themselves. And so through this partnership, we've really been able to give them a, an enterprise foundation for which they're able to use their skill set to, to really focus on the things that require their, their time and energy and attention. And so furthering the capabilities, really providing an enterprise risk-free solution, but the opportunity cost is, is huge and the savings that he's been able to provide just by being able to put his talents really where they need to be rather than trying to reinvent the wheel or providing a, a product themselves. So um, I, know, I know we'll get to the cost savings in a second, but before we do that, let's bring it down a level. You talk about Hortonworks was able to provide an enterprise platform. What does that really mean? Is it a test and development platform? Is it something in the cloud? We got to always talk about cloud. Give me a little bit more about, without getting into obviously the bits and the bytes, but what is it that Jido can do differently today than they couldn't do three, four, five years ago? I'll defer to Leo on the Jido piece. Let me give a quick little soundbite about what Hortonworks does and the value that we provide to our customers like Jido. Hortonworks is a data platform company. What, what that means is we harness the, the power of the open source community developing the projects like Hadoop and uh, you know, other essential big data technologies. And we bring it through a product life cycle. So you're harnessing all the goodness of open source, the flexibility, the agility, the interoperability, taking that and putting it in an enterprise consumable fashion. 
we are platform agnostic, and so you mentioned cloud. That's a deployment model that some of our customers do, whether it's on the cloud or on-prem or both. You know, having a consistent platform for which you're able to access your data, uh, it, it's essential. And having something that's secure and, and able to be consistent, you know, as Leo will talk about, it's, it's huge as you're building your data-driven applications and your data-driven systems. Yeah, Jason, here's the way I would look at it, right? And here's kind of the facts behind our, our transition. When you look at us, when we first initially have built a big data platform, we at Jaido have built our own glue to hold all these open source capabilities together and really be able to have a production-ready capability. What ended up happening is after about 18, 24 months of, of running that, uh, with our own glue, what we found very quickly was that we started spending more and more of our time on O&Ming the glue that holds this open source software together versus innovating and providing capability to the warfighter. So we were at this point where, where O&M started eating into uh, our ability to put capabilities out to the warfighter. And that's really when our journey started on, hey, where is the space right now? Is there a commercial option for us to look at, right, that can really take this burden off? And does that make sense from a cost perspective? So we spent a good six months looking at the commercial options that were available out there that really were about taking this open source glue and, and commercializing it and, and pushing it out to customers. And after that, we were able to take, and, and obviously we chose Hortonworks uh, for, for a couple of different reasons, but the intent there was really to take that off our plate so we can focus more on the mission piece and not be so focused on the O&M piece. And that really gets to the maturity of the space and where it is uh, now versus where it was, let's say, in, in 2015. So 2015, you almost had no choice but to build the, your own glue to hold these capabilities together. And you look down the road two, three years later, and there's definitely a, a, a plethora of commercial folks out there who are really doing a lot of that work for us and, and letting us do the innovation piece versus focusing on that bare-bones O&M piece that, that we did spend quite a time on early on. Leo, generally speaking, what were you spending on, on the glue piece, the O&M piece? Did you see the percentage go from 20% to 40% to 80%, or you just saw it creeping up enough that it started to worry you? It started to worry me when I started hitting the about 33 35% of, of our time and effort was spent on the glue. And I think just in, in time and, and eating that tech debt as we went over time, we got to about 41% of our time on the development side was spent on the glue versus spent on either new requirements that were coming in or uh, enhancing capabilities that were already out there. It was fairly quick. I was actually a little surprised by how quick that did happen. And it's just a matter of scale, right? As we started scaling up, it became harder and harder to manage those pieces right there. And now you spend very little bit of money on the O&M side. I mean, you got to pay, you got to pay Hortonworks. I imagine they want to get paid a little bit, but but generally speaking, what's your percentage now? Yeah, on the platform side, we're about from a from a cost perspective under ten percent right now. And then that leads you to put all that money back, the twenty five to thirty five percent back into the mission side and thus get capabilities more quickly and then not always have to go back to your boss and go, hey, I need a little more money in that budget next year or, hey, I mean, everyone needs more money. I get that. But but that, that gives you the ability to, to kind of push out capabilities more quickly. Are you seeing a, a change in that way? But definitely. From a pushing out capability more quickly, just, just getting being able to have an agnostic platform to be working off of that has the core components that we were already using definitely has 
given us a lot more flexibility to move out a lot faster, right? Because the challenge before was you almost had to do things in tandem. As new capabilities come out, you also had to do some some heavy lift on the uh, infrastructure piece and on the architecture piece to get to what's next. I think that's been alleviated quite a bit. And it's also given us some time to rethink and look at uh, how we modernize and how we make sure that architecturally we're set up to, to either be on-prem, off-prem, cloud, so it, it gives us that flexibility as opposed to having to start a whole brand new project to be able to do that transition when it makes sense. All right, let's take a quick break. We can come back. We can dive deeper into this world of open source and how you guys are using it. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Agency, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of Hortonworks for U.S. Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of Hortonworks, U.S. Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, your host. Now, Leo, before break, we were kind of getting a little bit of background about how you guys moved to open source and, and using the Hortonworks platform to really build upon the capability side to really push out capabilities more quickly and, and get away from the, the waterfall, move towards the agile DevOps, whatever we're going to call it nowadays. One of the big pieces to all of this is definitely the workforce. And before we get into the, the nitty gritty of the open source and, and DevOps side, let's talk about your workforce because you guys were a fairly new organization, generally speaking, for the government. But I'm sure people brought in some of their old ways, meaning this waterfall approach. So you had to really turn this that battleship 180 degrees so maybe talk a little bit about the workforce side of this movement so the workforce side was a it was a journey right and, and i tell folks all the time uh, throughout government when they ask me hey how do we get from a to b in the way you've done and i always start with well it's a 24-month journey at a minimum <laughs> and a couple of things around that is is thinking about the human capital piece in, in this way you have folks you can retool i.e. you may have a, a developer who you know knows how to program in C++ and, and you can teach them a new language because they've got the base capabilities to do that. You can reskill and, and there's going to be folks out there who, who may have been doing X function for the last you know, four or five years, but definitely have the, the, the knowledge and expertise to be able to shift into an area. Uh, and then you can redeploy, uh, i.e. find somewhere for those folks to work where they can add to the mission that may not be uh, necessarily within that workflow. Uh, and that's pretty much the approach that we took. Uh, and it did take around 24 months. And, and like anything else, change is hard. Probably the hardest part of this was especially when you're talking about some of these emerging technologies, is, is how do you shape policy and process that's not organic to the federal government? So we spent quite a bit of time focused around reshaping our policies uh, and processes to support this. And some folks said, hey, we, I think we'd rather go do another mission. Um, and other folks were very hungry to go do the mission. I think the bigger challenge was the training challenge around that, especially in some, some of the emerging spaces where maybe there's not as much training on, on the commercial side yet, or the availability of just the, the base information to how to deploy capabilities and you know how to put it together is, is a little different. And that, that took some different approaches. Some of that was leveraging some of the uh, courses, right, Coursera and things like that that are out there right now. 
Some of it was really engaging in at meetups uh, with folks who were in those open source projects and actively working them and having those conversations with, with those subject matter experts to, to start bringing people up to speed. And that's on the government military side. On the vendor side, we've been very lucky that, we, you know, we've built contracts that were very specific to being able to quickly shift an entire workforce in the direction we were moving in. So we built uh, very robust uh, service level agreements that helped us with our partners be able to make sure that they were able to bring the right skill set into support. Again, pretty challenging, right? When we first started our big data effort, that was about a 40% skill set change to be done within six months. And we were lucky enough that we had an integrator that was able to support that, but it was definitely uh, very challenging while changing kind of their process and policy piece. Um, we're seeing that again right now as we've moved fully from what was already an agile development process to really a secure DevOps process. We've kind of been working through that again, and we're looking at about a 30% change in skill set across the workforce. And that's also been a very interesting transition. And on the government side, that's actually impacted us in, in a fundamentally different area, which is really more on the uh, policy and cybersecurity piece, trying to get folks to come up to speed with both trust in the automation and a lot of it is where there is no existing policy. How do you build this policy where you have an intimate understanding of the tech that's checking your cybersecurity status? So I think the big thing around the human capital piece is patience, right? It's going to take some time. I think there's this this thought out there that you can you can take a template and say, hey, here's what we're going to do, and it just happens. And I, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Part of this is really bringing the workforce in very slowly into a, a new and very different approach. What's interesting about what you talk about is the time. And so much happens, people are impatient about getting people reskilled or bringing in new people. Let's start with the data side first, and we'll work to, to the secure DevOps side. When you had people who are like, this isn't for me, I don't want to change, was that a tough conversation you had to have? Or, or were you both kind of on the same page that, okay, I will do my best to, to find you a, a new position that fits your needs. And meanwhile, I'm going to bring in somebody that fits my needs. Talk a little bit about that, because people, a lot of times in government, at least, and probably industry just as much, those hard conversations are, are, are nobody likes to have them. Believe it or not, it was actually a lot smoother than, than you think. I, there was a couple of folks who definitely, they were like, hey, th this is not our space. We, we don't have maybe, let's say, a technical skill to really deep dive, understand this. This is... You know, we've been doing X for a long time, and we don't think we can get to where you need us to be. I had a lot of support from senior leadership at, at JIDO at the time, and we definitely uh, did a big lift to help all these folks be able to redeploy to the right places, whether it be within our own organization or other organizations where they were a better fit. But I don't think it was a very hard conversation. I'd say with about 90% of the workforce that we had, it was a pretty straightforward conversation. I think the folks realized that they were a little bit out of their element and that maybe either they had to reskill themselves or, or, or their skill set was better suited somewhere else. Like every other organization, we had some folks that, that still were, did push back, and that was a little bit of a, of a rougher conversation. But I think at the end of the day, what we saw is by leadership being actively engaged in helping get folks in the right place where they provided the most value for the organization, I, I think overall 
everybody felt pretty comfortable with those transitions. And in fact, as, as they did transition, some of those folks came back and found folks with the skill sets we needed to bring back to the enterprise. So I think it's all about being transparent on where you're going. Uh, and being transparent with the workforce on your expectations from a level of knowledge perspective and really from from where you're going on your term. And from a contractor side, you talked about service level agreements and ensuring that you had contracts and contractors that were flexible. How did you know where you were going to write those contracts? Because as you and I know quite well, you don't always write a contract today for tomorrow. You write a contract six months ago for, for, for six months from now. We spent quite a bit of time on building our kind of core contracts very much around innovation and getting to what that next piece of technology was going to be that was out supporting the force. And part of that was very much focused around building very tightly wound service level agreements that really guide our entire a contract approach, right? So part of this is having a contract with, with open enough framework that allows folks to be focused on delivery of capability. Not so much I need delivery of a widget, but I need delivery of these capabilities. And using that approach, we've been very successful in being able to, to tightly manage those SLAs and shift with, uh, to have the vendor be able to more easily shift with us without being impacted on their delivery. What was the reaction of your contracting folks when you went to them and said, hey, I need this agile approach to contracting? And when I use agile, I mean little agile, not big agile, as in like iterative and DevOps. They were excited. In fact, I think almost every vendor that supports me is, is really excited about, about that approach, right? A lot of these companies are really looking to move as fast as, as they would move, let's say, in the commercial side of their business, right? And and when they have a government client who's trying to shape uh, the government construct to support what they would ordinarily do on the commercial side, we have actually gotten no pushback. On, on the contrary, we've gotten probably a lot more tips and definitely been introduced to more folks in the commercial space who, who've given us at least their lessons learned and their approaches that make sense within the federal space. Let me put a finer point on that. The The contractors are always happy to do whatever you need them to do, especially if you pay them. But I, I was thinking more about the JIDO contracting officers, contract specialists, the people that you go to and say, hey, I need a contract for X, write it, award it, put go through the process. Were they also pretty open to, to a new kind of approach? Because a little bit of a different approach that we took, we actually uh, have a GSA as our contract officer. So we, we've outsourced that there and, and definitely pushed it in within a shop at GSA that's very much focused on getting the ball down the field. And they've been I mean, they've been great on making sure that we've been able to shape our contract to support the agility that we're looking for and the agility that we need as JIDO to get capability out the door. So we've actually, I would say, not gotten pushback from them, but really they've been enablers to make sure that we're shaping our contracts and our contract approach in a way that maximizes uh, speed and delivery of capability. And I imagine that's the assisted acquisition service, the the folks at GSA FAS. That's correct. Yeah, they they're known obviously for for pushing the envelope in a number of areas. And before we take another break, from a dollars perspective, you got to put contracting dollars forward, or are you able to do it in an agile manner as well? Meaning this is a task order based approach, but you can do kind of small task orders and build upon the capabilities versus the big task order approach, where it's you know thirty, forty million dollars, and then you hope something happens. 
more of the bigger task order approach. Hey, I need widget X. It's about delivering capability. So what type of capabilities are delivered one through N within that? It really is about the uh, the integrator and the, the support that we get from the integrator being focused on it as those requirements come into us, being able to shape that very quickly and deliver whether it be a new tool, a new analytic. So a little bit different, right? I would say the more traditional approach would be every time every time theater said, "Hey, we uh, we need to do X, or we need to understand, you know, Y or Z. Can you build us a capability to do that?" That would be its own task order. I think that that's a, a lot more of a complex maneuver with considerably more overhead, as opposed to having, "Hey, I need software development capability delivered." and letting program managers really focus on, on delivering those capabilities as opposed to focusing all their time and effort on writing a new task order. That's, that's actually fascinating. I, I thought you were going to tell me the opposite. I thought you were going to tell me we have a bunch of, we do a bunch of small task orders as we need stuff, but it sounds to me like you've made an award to company X and that company is going to provide a set of services and you go back to them and say, here's the service we need today and then here's the service we need tomorrow. And then as a new service comes up weekly, monthly, whatever, however often, you go back to them and say, here's the next service we need. Do I have that understanding right? That's right. All within the scope of delivering software-developed uh, capabilities. Fascinating. All right, Leo, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, bring Sean back in the conversation maybe and can continue talking more about open source and uh, software development. My guest is Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of Horton Works, U.S. Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of Horton Works U.S. Public Sector. Leo, we spent the last part talking about training, getting the workforce and the contractors up to par what you need from them. One of the things you talked about was the, the policy side of this discussion as well and, and how you need to ensure that the policy side matches up with the, the development side when it comes to security. And I think that's probably the biggest thing about open source. People think open source, not a lot of security. Everyone's got can see the, the source code. This is just not safe. But talk a little bit about how you are ensuring your new development is secure and, and, and how open source does not have a lot of too much concern more than anything else for you maybe. Uh, here's how I start, right? So, so yeah, those are all valid concerns. Part of the challenge of, of really moving into the open source space is, is building out that core infrastructure and capability to, to triage source code to make sure you have a good handle on, on what's coming into the enterprise uh, and to have those tools within your toolkit to be able to uh, look at them, right, forensically and be under and understand really what risks you're taking on the network. One of the great things that's happened in the last couple of years is the department's in, in embrace of the risk management framework and, and NIST's uh, cybersecurity framework guidance, which really said, hey, our, you know, our job is to make sure that we're doing, you know, continuous deployments, continuous integration, and, and continuous monitoring of our security posture, and we need to look at it more as what risk are we taking on our networks and with our capabilities versus a compliance checklist uh, going into to that space. So bringing in open source really means you have to be able to, to, to bring in code 
and have it stored and have it available for, for your developers, uh, but you also have to have it available for your cybersecurity subject matter experts to be able to go in there and really do some, some tough risk assessment. And it definitely is not a panacea, right? There's, there's still some, some bigger uh, challenges around that, uh, things like how do you deal with third-party libraries, right? So if it, a code that was developed, let's say, 10 years ago uh, and it's been static since, how do you assess risks around that? And and that really is with some of the tools that you bring in to help you do that. I think the bigger part around that is is adjusting policy to support that. So I think uh, across DOD, many of the folks I talk to, more of a traditional approach still to looking at that. And, and a lot of it is because most of us are used to just straight buying commercial products. So we're not interrogating source code on a, on a daily basis. When you start looking at a lot of the open source capabilities, you're you're going to change the way you look at your security posture, and you're going to change the things you look at. And that's one of the pieces that you do got to focus with, a big lift on the human capital piece is bringing in the right people with the right skill set to be able not just to look at source code, but once that's put together within a system to understand what those risks really are. And there's still a little light on policy around that, right? I think right now the space that we're in today, when you look at secure DevOps where you have a lot of automation going on and a lot of tools and you're, and you're looking at risk on source code that's either written by yourself or written by others from the open source community is understanding those thresholds of risks that you're willing to take and how do you bake those into these tools and to these automated processes. And that, that is very challenging uh, and definitely takes some thinking around from, from both a process and a policy perspective, what risks you're willing to take and, and how you're going to shape that in a way that maximizes uh, visibility and transparency. Uh, the one thing I will say is that a lot of this automation that's happening right now and, and a lot of these newer tools that really focus on, on triaging source code and, and a lot of these open source products as they come onto your network, what it's really doing is it's upping the game on both uh, transparency and governance. Right, so before this kind of, you know, you would look at it and people would, you know, you may get a package, uh, uh, you know, a piece of paper with some, hey, here's what I think the risks are, uh, and a software description document, and that's all you would get. Uh, and it would, the PM would have it. I think now what you really have is the ability to see that across the board, right, from your network engineer to your software developer to your cybersecurity SME. That data is always available to be interrogated and for use. So your ability to really understand what the risks are and what's really on your network really go up a hundredfold. And generally speaking, when you talk about the risks, do you feel comfortable that open source is as risky, less risky, more risky than anything else you would do, any other commercial product you may bring in? I'll give you an attorney's answer. It depends. <laughs> depends. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so this this is one that, that, that is a little bit of tough and does, does take a, a little bit of subject matter expertise around it. I, I think what you're going to find is that the larger open source projects that are out there that are more commonly used have a very robust community around them, uh, have definitely uh, – folks in the commercial space that are that are supporting them tending to go in that direction is a lot safer uh, obviously right you're, you're going to lower your risk thresholds and that's part of even even my triage when I look at you know 
bring an open source capability in. I want to bring an open source product that has a community that, that that's supporting it, right? An open source community supporting it, a commercial community supporting it, as opposed to, you know, a project that may be sitting on, on GitLab somewhere that was built by one guy out of his garage. It may be great. It may change the world. But that, that's a high-risk open-source product to bring on as opposed to uh, what I would consider a lower-risk open-source product that's, that's out there and being supported by the community. So that's, that's part of this uh, changing way of doing business, right? It's really thinking through that problem and understanding what, what those open-source capabilities you're bringing in and what the community around them uh, looks like because you could very well bring in an open-source product that has maybe a handful of folks supporting it and – Three weeks later, there's nobody supporting it, and now what do you do if it's uh, on your network and it's uh, or baked into your system? Is it, it becomes very challenging, and and I, still, I don't want to be in the business of running my own open source uh, software uh, indefinitely for the community either. So I think that that's part of this of this triaging piece, and it's also part of the risk piece, right? I mean, you're definitely lowering lowering your uh, risk threshold and. and and ensuring better security if there's a larger community supporting that open source project. And let me bring Sean in from Hortonworks. Sean, talk a little bit about how you guys approach the risk and governance and the security side as you guys provide your services to people like Leo and other government agencies. I just want to add a little bit to the the last conversation as well around the open source. I think that this is a a key point on semantics as well, right? Um, uh, Folks that are just getting started with open source may tend to group all open source together. And I think the DOD and the federal government in general views enterprise open source as a commercial uh, off-the-shelf product, right? It's, it's something that is supported and should really be thought of from a fulfillment and a maintenance perspective, really no different than a traditional proprietary component. Free and open source, on the other hand, the projects that Leo was referring to, you know, those are riskier, and they should be uh, evaluated and taken into consideration before putting them on their network. But when you think about an enterprise open source, we have the, the support, the accreditation, the testing and interoperability processes, the pieces that really go to the risk component that you're addressing, both program risk, te- technical risk, uh, and, and overall sustainability risk. When you're building a architecture, a solution like Leo is doing, you need to have the assurances that something's going to be around in 18 months and, and it's going to continue to support the uh, latest and greatest of algorithms or, or com- uh, capabilities that, that come along line. And, and that's where you're able to really harness the goodness of open source, right, the community, all of the eyes on the development process, but the benefit of that product cycle, right? And when you think about risk, too, uh, you know, taking looking behind at how it's developed, but also looking forward, when you think about the patches and the upgrades and the updates that are necessary, a company like Hortonworks, we're a global commercial company, right? And so you think about something like GDPR, data is a problem globally. And this is an area where I think there's not as big of a capability or requirements gap from the government to the commercial space. I think in other areas, you may be able to say that government requirements are, are a little more unique and require a, a slight variation. But when it comes to data, and the data platform, there's a lot of similarities over how it's being used and how it needs to be preserved and the security governance and automation concerns that come with that. So when you're comparing, uh, you know, a a product like Hortonworks data uh, platform to, 
you know, some community variant of it, customers and, and partners like Leo and his team are able to benefit from global or commercial advancements, and we're able to push those patches out so that they're not having to rely on their workforce. And this is a really tough area, as Leo alluded to earlier, and um, a lot of the, the folks, these are, these are special snowflakes, and, and we employ some of the, the world's smartest and, and experts on it. And those are the folks that are pushing these patches out so that our customers can rest assured that what we're providing is not only going to accomplish and fulfill the bug or the defect that they might, may not even realize exists, but that it's going to work within their system because we don't just test everything in a silo. It's, it's tested on a system level with hardware components and the various uh, you know, 2,300 partners on the commercial space that we have to ensure that it's going to work as expected and as advertised. And Leo, that what Sean was saying tags back to the beginning of the conversation where you had to get out of the O and M phase and really just focus on the DME development modernization enhancement and let let Sean worry about the O and M side. That, that tags right back to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, I would add, uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of luck over the last couple of years in, in, in partnering up with some some of the folks in the open source space who who've been able to to take this new model of support. And we really haven't had as many challenges as, let's say, 2013-14 timeframe. What we're really seeing is that most of these folks are, are definitely ready to support. And when you come with, to them with problems, like a very DOD-specific problem, uh, it may just be that they don't know. Right? They, they've never seen it. They don't have a, a client maybe in the commercial space who has that challenge. And conversely, right, which is even more interesting, and, and we've been kind of a lucky beneficiary of this too, is you know you, you go to these folks with, with with a problem and say, hey, look, this is this is a challenge we're seeing on this open source package, and they come back and they tell you, this just happened a couple of weeks ago to me, hey, Capital One solved that problem, and they're going to release that fix uh, to the open, and they released it, and our problem was fixed. So. So you get the benefit of, of having not just all eyes, but all eyes across the space, right, both in government and in the commercial space, really looking at some of these problems. So there's there's definitely some interesting benefits that are a little bit different, right, not traditional for DOD, but definitely do give us quite a bit of lift and, and expertise inadvertently. Very good. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can maybe talk about how you are spreading the word, the gospel, if you will, about open source and, and this DevOps, uh, secure DevOps approach. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of HortonWorks U.S. Public Sector. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, the Vice President of HortonWorks, U.S. Public Sector. This has been a very fascinating conversation. And Leo, I can imagine when someone's listening to this and they go, well, that's Leo. He's special. He's got, you know, carte blanche to to get the capabilities out more quickly because of the type of work you do, right? I mean, you, you're, you're protecting the warfighter. You're protecting the people on the ground in theater. So you, so DOD gives you kind of that broad perspective, do what you need to do to get it done. And somebody who's listening to it says, no, I can't do that because I only, you know, fight forest fires or I only help, you know, protect the food supply. And, and, and you know, generally speaking, we as a society look at one thing more important than the other. But so give me a sense, what are some of the lessons learned and, and are you sharing this approach with others around government within DOD? How, how are you getting the word out? So I'll start with the, with the second part of your question first. 
So definitely getting the word out. In, in fact, I've seen an uptick over the last year in, in folks uh, across the federal government, not just DOD, really reaching out and, and saying, hey, we're thinking about moving in the same direction. You guys have moved in. What does that look like? How can you help? What are your lessons learned? Is there at least some framework that you're operating within to do that? You know, what do your contracts look like? How are you doing the policy piece around cybersecurity? And I've been very active on, on definitely sitting down with, with those folks and sharing those lessons learned. Uh, and part of it is building some artifacts that you can give folks uh, to really take with them uh, as a template to start from. Uh, on the secure DevOps piece, we've, we've definitely written a con op that we've, we've pushed out to a lot of folks within the federal government as a, as a point of departure and a starting point on, hey, Here's, here's the kind of tools you need. Here's how you operationalize this. Here's how it falls within cybersecurity. Really that guide to help uh, folks think through the problem as they start down this journey. I at least have spent a lot of time having those conversations, and I definitely see an appetite across the board, both within DOD and within uh, the rest of the federal government. As far as lessons learned, I think the biggest one that, and I tell folks all the time, is patience. That natural instinct that all right, we're gonna we're gonna put this framework down, we're gonna put these tools in, and it's all gonna work. You gotta slowly work your way up there. And I tell folks, start small, start a small proof of concept. Do do the DevOps piece on on a very small, you know, web application. Don't try to bite the whole apple, just bite little chunks of it. That starts bringing some of your human capital in, and and starts beefing up the learning that's needed. I think that's the big thing right there. Uh, the other big lesson learned is. Get your cybersecurity folks excited about this. I, I think more often than not, when I talk to folks, the, the engineering team, the software development team, the, pro, the program managers are all excited about, about really pushing in and, and bringing in open source software and, and really doing the secure DevOps stuff just to get capability out faster to their customer. And the cybersecurity folks are kind of left out of the conversation. I think bringing them in early and, and really, as you develop a framework and an approach to get capability out and getting them excited about it and having them help shape what your policy process, the tools you use, looks like, I think that's a huge thing. In fact, I'd say there's, there's at least two folks, uh, uh, one from the Navy and, and some other folks from another agency who, who definitely did that very early after having a couple of sit-downs with us 18 months ago, and they've definitely made quite a bit of progress where they've been able to really start pushing stuff out and start getting the capabilities on their network to get not just faster, but definitely more secure. So I, I think that's the big thing right there. Those, those two, two are the big uh the big rocks that I see that kind of folks stumble across. So patience, that's, that's the number one. Good advice. Sean, let me turn to you. When you talk to your federal customers, uh, what are you seeing from them? What, what are some of the common mistakes they're making that you would recommend that they avoid? Really the key is to understand the difference between you know, open source and enterprise open source. Uh, I think understanding where you're trying to go and avoiding the vendor lock-in is, is essential. Having the right culture, as Leo has clearly demonstrated that they've established there, both uh, internally as well as externally with uh, the vendors and the integrators that are you know, contributing to their solution. All right, very nice. Good advice from both of you all. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really do appreciate everyone's time. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so let me thank my guests. Leo Garcia, the CTO of the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, or JIDO, and Sean Beerweiler, Vice President of Hortonworks U.S. Public Sector. Leo, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM.
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 